Hey, I'm Chance from Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, I'm Chris Bowman, former intern. I'm Colin from Louisville. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Lee Unkrich, has worked at Pixar for more than 15 years. He started while in his mid-20s as an editor, moved on to become the co-director of several Pixar films, and most recently was the solo director of Toy Story 3. Toy Story 3 earned nearly $1 billion at the box office, making it uh, the highest grossing. It's now over $1 billion, Lee Unkrich is indicating to me with an upraised finger. Either that or he's just really excited about a party going on somewhere that I'm not party to. Um, uh, it's, it's earned over $1 billion at the box office, uh, making it the highest grossing animated film of all time. Um, and... Let's just let's face it. That's a pretty good total for even any kind of movie. A billion dollars. That's roughly one billion dollars more than The Sound of Young America has ever grossed, for example. Um, Lee Unkrich, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thanks, Jesse. It's so great to be here. Finally, I'm excited. To, I'm excited to have you here. We were actually going to take our microphones out to um, uh, to the fancy hotel where they have you sit in a, a suite. And do press interviews, and you specially requested to come to Sound of Young America World Headquarters. So absolutely, you know, Jesse, I've been, you know, this. I've been listening to your show for years, and uh, and I first got in touch with you because uh, I'd been listening to you, and then all of a sudden one day you had a Pixar themed show. I think you had uh, on somebody who had written a book about Pixar. Yeah, sure. And I and I got in touch with you, and I said, well, if you're so interested in Pixar, I can give you the real deal. <laughs> and uh, it took us a little while to work this out, but I'm here, and of course I. I had to be here in your house doing the interview. If I'm going to be on the Sound of Young America, I gotta, I gotta go for the full Monty. Um, I think a lot of people who uh, have careers in animation uh, spend their, you know, are people who spent their childhoods drawing and designing characters and obsessing over Warner Brothers cartoons and you know watching Dumbo over and over and and all of these things. And and I get the impression that your initial career trajectory was much more oriented towards traditional filmmaking. Did you did you ever think of yourself as possibly an animator or someone who would work in animation? Um, no, I didn't at all. And even though I've been at Pixar for the last 16 years, I, there's still days that I completely feel like an interloper. Like I, <laughs> like I just don't belong because I, I am the first person to direct a film at Pixar who's not an animator himself. And, uh, you know, I'm not part of this CalArts, um, uh, you know, posse that John Lasseter and Andrew Stanton and Brad Bird and Pete Docter are members of. I went to film school at USC. And um, I've always liked animation. I was a huge fan of John Lasseter's short films that he made before Toy Story. But no, I never at all saw this as being something uh, in my future. I just, you know, I've always loved movies and wanted to make movies. And uh, I find it completely bizarre to find myself sitting here talking to you about a, a feature-length animated film that I've just directed. You were working as an editor on uh, a television show folks might remember called Silk Stockings, uh, an erotic thriller 
uh, television program. Um, when you started working at, at Pixar, um, how did the how did the opportunity come up, and and like what led you to uh, sign up with this company that at that point had basically generated some short films that had appeared in you know Spike and Mike's Festival of Animation. Well, thank you for bringing up my sordid past, Jesse. <laughs> people should look up your uh, people should look up your IMDb credits. The uh, the featured episode that you edited has a name that I don't even think I can say on public radio. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was fortunate enough to direct an episode of Silk Stockings as well, so uh, I had kind of the full experience. Um, you know, my path to Pixar was really kind of weird and fortuitous, and uh, you know, I couldn't repeat it again if I tried. Um, when I was going to film school at USC, I um, I really ended up focusing on editing. I, you know, I discovered that I was an editor at heart. It's what I was good at. It's what I was put on this earth to do. Um, this was kind of in the early '90s, and uh, they were editing. They were you know making this new movie, Pixar, which was there to be their first uh, uh, you know feature animated feature. And so I came up. Initially, it was a freelance gig. I was only supposed to be at Pixar for four to six weeks. And uh, and here I am, sixteen years later. What did you have to learn about animation when you came into this group of people who were, you know, by all accounts, very brilliant animators? I had to learn a ton because I, you know, I had dabbled in animation a bit. I had done some stop motion claymation when I was in film school, um, but you know, I didn't know. I, I knew nothing about animation. Everything that I've learned has been completely through osmosis um, and through the experience of being alongside some of these brilliant people. I mean, I've I've been fortunate enough to sit by John Lasseter's side literally through you know. Uh, three full films uh, worth of directing animators, and uh, you know, and I've worked with Pete Doctor, and I've worked with Andrew Stanton. So that that has been my animation school, and yet I still continue to have a lot to learn. When I came into Toy Story three, I was, I I was prepared to make the film in a lot of ways. There were a lot of aspects of the movie that I was completely confident that I could handle, but um, I was also so completely intimidated by um, having to direct animators. Uh, you know, I, so I, I, I partnered really closely with my supervising uh, animators on the movie, um, Mike Ventrini and Bobby Podesta. And I, I was very clear with my animators up front. I said, look, I'm not one of you. I know how to make movies, um, but I don't know how to animate. I, wouldn't, I couldn't animate to save my life. But I do know about acting. I do know about performance. And um, we're going to get through this together, and it's going to be great. And um, in the case of Toy Story 3, you know, I, my animators are, are they're my actors. You know, they're providing literally half of the performance. Um, Tom Hanks and Tim Allen, Don Rickles, all those guys are doing a brilliant job uh, creating the vocal performances for the characters, but that's really just kind of half of the performance. Um, I then need to work with my animators to provide the physical performance for, for Woody and Buzz and the rest of the characters. And, and again, in my mind, they're actors. How is the um, the sort of uh, visual and, and storytelling language of animation uh different from a live action and and additionally in addition to that um what was it like uh as pixar grew um to in some ways create the language of 3d computer animation um 
you know, that's an interesting question because when I first came to Pixar, I studied a lot of animation to kind of learn what I could from it, especially when it came to editing. Um, and what I found was that animation editing kind of wasn't very interesting. It didn't excite me at all, and I didn't feel like any had anything to learn from it. Um, but the more I dug into uh, what John was doing, what the team was doing at Pixar, I realized that they were creating images and movies in a way that was much more like live action than any animation I'd seen. Um, you know, we, we basically create little virtual sets in the computer. Uh, we have cameras, we have lenses, and uh, when we shoot scenes, we're, we're making all the same choices that you would in live action. And we slowly evolved a system, and a lot of it was by my doing, because I was responsible for a lot of the staging and camera work, even on the first Toy Story, where we would shoot coverage, just like you would in live action. You know, we'd shoot the scene from lots of different angles, um, uh, do all kinds of dynamic staging uh, between the characters and the camera and the ways that the camera would move and the choice of lenses and really just like you know all the same choices I would make as a live action director and uh, we would then bring all that raw footage into the into the cutting room and and make choices and and structure scenes again like live action so you know when you ask about what's specific about animation I don't even know how to answer that because I I honestly don't wear a different hat when I'm making the films at Pixar I'm wearing the same hat that I wore back when I was directing live action I I really think of them as one and the same. Uh, the only main difference is, is that in live action, obviously, you're, you're, you find yourself on a set having to coordinate a lot of different technicians and actors and people at the same time to achieve what you want to achieve. Whereas in our world, we have the luxury of being able to focus on just one element at a time and perfect that one element and, uh, and ultimately carefully and thoughtfully combine uh, all the different aspects of lighting and editing and performance uh, to create the movie that we really want to create. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Lee Unkrich, has worked at Pixar Studios for more than 15 years. He was the director of Toy Story 3, which is the highest-grossing animated film of all time. In the movie, the toy gang that we've gotten to know over the first two Toy Story films has been sent to a child care center because their owner is going off to college. Here they are being introduced to their new environs by Lotsa Huggin Bear a tired-looking old blue teddy bear that runs the joint. Well, hello there. I thought I heard new voices. Welcome to Sunnyside, folks. I'm Lotso Hugging Bear, but please call me Lotso. Buzz Lightyear, we coming. <laughs> First thing you got to know about me, I'm a hugger. Oh, look at you all. You've been through a lot today, haven't you? Oh, it's been horrible. Well, you're safe now. We're all cast-offs here. We've been dumped, donated, yard sales, second-handed, and just plain thrown out. But just you wait. You'll find being donated was the best thing that ever happened to you. <laughs> Mr. Lotso, do toys here get played with every day? All day long, five days a week. But what happens when the kids grow up? Well, now I'll tell you. When the kids get old, new ones come in. When they get old, new ones replace them. You'll never be outgrown or neglected, never abandoned or forgotten. No owners means no heartbreak. One of the things that's interesting to me about um, the relationship between Toy Story and it being an animated story is that it, it feels to me like, and I, and I wonder what you think of this, there is something inherently metaphorical about animation 
that there is that because of the level of abstraction that animation provides, whether it's two dimensional or three dimensional, um, it's very easy to see stories in terms of um, in terms of themes and lessons, and you know the kinds of things that that you would expect to find in a you know book of Greek myths. Well, it's funny you should bring this up because I was just talking to somebody about this recently. You know, there was a lot of talk on Toy Story 3 specifically about people's reaction to it, um, especially when it, it comes to uh, people crying during it. There was, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of talk about how we somehow managed to make grown men cry in Toy Story 3. And we did do that. It wasn't our intention to, but, th that, but that it did happen. The, a lot of people found the film very emotional. And so I, you know, we've thought long and hard about why that is and why, why did this film end up being so emotional and, and why do people often feel emotional during uh, good animation? And I, I think it is that to a great degree. I think there is that, there's that level of abstraction and uh, kind of a, a lowering of, of one's guard when, when you're watching animation. I think there's a lot more turning inward. Uh, you know, there's more of a sense of relating to the to the problems of the characters in the film and, and, and kind of looking inward and relating it to to things in your own life. And um, I don't know, you know, again, that issue of kind of lowering your guard, I feel like people kind of allow themselves to open themselves up more to, um, you know, to the experiences that they're seeing in the films. Do you feel like that affects the way you make a film? I don't think so. Um, you know, when we're creating the, the stories and developing the characters, we, we don't think of them as cartoon characters. They're, they're very real to us, especially Woody and Buzz um, and, and the characters that have been in all three of the films. Um, I mean, I wish you could see the conversations that we've had in the writing room. You know, I worked with an amazing writer on this film, Michael Arndt, who wrote Little Miss Sunshine. And he, he had certainly never written for animation before he did this film. And all of our conversations are about very deep issues of character and, and, and you know, motivation and, and uh, you know. They just, just happen to be about a toy telephone. Ex exactly. But we're not. But they, they have to be real to us. The, the moment we just try to say, oh, uh, you know, a telephone rolls in and starts talking, you know, I, I don't even know where to start developing that character. I mean, it has to come from a very real place. In the case of the telephone in Toy Story 3, you know, we we knew we were doing kind of a prison break movie. So we did a lot of research, visited a lot of prisons and uh, and also watched a lot of prison movies, prison escape movies. And there was always the one character of the old guy who's been in prison for life and knows his way around the place, knows the lay of the land, knows all the ins and outs and um, kind of helps your main character uh, begin their escape. So we knew we had to have a character like that. It was just kind of an iconic character. And we decided to make it this telephone. And you just thought, what toy is most like Morgan Freeman? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, ex exactly that. And um, then the fun, because it is a telephone, is you know what can we do with this character now to make it very specific and unique? And uh, that phone, the Fisher-Price Chatter Telephone, um, he has a face. He has two eyes that can look around, but his mouth is a sticker. It's just a sticker stuck to the front of the toy. So that was a limitation for us. How do we do that? Do we animate the sticker? You know, that would have been kind of weird. Um, so we finally ended up deciding to have the character speak to Woody through his own handset, which is a strange thing, but it also makes kind of a certain odd sense. Um, and that's the same, you know, for the Ken doll in the movie. Uh, and any time, you know, we, we think of them as real people. We try to start from a real human place, but then we layer on kind of toy specifics uh, to keep that level of abstraction. 
Uh, I want to play another scene from the film. The film is essentially about what happens to these toys when they're separated by, you know, the passage of time and the events of child development from their owner, Andy, who becomes a teenager and is moving away to college. Um, the toys in the movie end up in a child care center. And in this scene, Buzz Lightyear, uh, voiced by Tim Allen, finds acceptance from his new peers at the daycare, but um, those same new peers quickly turn against him. We're calling you up to the big league, son. From now on, you'll have anything you want. Excellent. I'll go get my friends. Whoa, whoa. Hold on there, boss. Those Caterpillar kids need someone to play with. But my friends don't belong there. Oh, none of us do. I agree, which is why, for the good of our community, we ask the newer toys, the stronger ones, to take on the hardships the rest of us can't bear anymore. Well, I... I guess that makes sense. But I can't accept. We're a family. We stay together. Family man, huh? I understand. Put him back in the timeout chair. Let's see here. Accessories, maintenance. Oh, here we go. Remove screws to access battery compartment. What are you doing? Stop! Let go of me! Ow! To return your Buzz Lightyear action figure to its original factory setting, no! slide the switch from play to demo. Stop! No! 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 We'll have more with Pixar's Lee Unkrich after a break. It's The Sound of Young America from PRI, Public Radio International. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Smith Micro Software, makers of Stuff It Deluxe, designed to move files simply and securely wherever customers want them to go. For Mac and PC, online at stuffit.com. Coverage of the world of comedy on The Sound of Young America is supported by Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the director, Lee Unkrich. His latest film just out on video is Toy Story 3. There's a very, very different framework in this film uh, than in the first two. Um, it's these characters r- relating to uh, a kid who's no longer a kid. Um, and it's really, I, I think, it's really, a, a, maybe even more than the first two films, a, a movie about uh, Woody. Um, and... I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how you think of and relate to uh, Woody's story in this film. He sort of he sort of has this odd place that is um, that's almost like half half child, half parent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Woody is the main character, and he's always been the main character of all three films. We've always imagined that this is ultimately kind of Woody's story. Um, 
it was tricky coming into this film because uh, we kind of solved Woody's problems at the end of Toy Story 2 because we thought that that was the end of our story at that point. Um, Woody has seemingly made peace with the fact that Andy, his owner, is going to grow up someday. But he says, well, you know, I'll enjoy the time that I have left and uh, I'll have you, Buzz Lightyear, by my side. And that left us in this interesting position because, uh, you know, Woody always thought he was going to be okay with Andy growing up, but he's really not. He's not at all. He's not at all ready to say goodbye to him. In fact, let's let's play um, one of those early scenes where... Uh, what we will call the gang, which is to say the toys all together, try and decide what they're going to do about the reality of Andy moving out. Uh, guys, hey, hold up. We, we, we need a staff meeting. Everyone, a staff meeting? Oh, not again. Oh, come on, Slim. Gather everyone up. Uh, we are gathered, Woody. Okay. Uh, first off, we all knew Operation Playtime was a long shot. More like a misfire. But we've always said this job isn't about getting played with. It's about... Being there for Andy. We know. But we can try again, right? I'm calling it, guys. We're closing up shop. What? Andy's going to college any day now. That was our last shot. Oh. We're going into attic mode, folks. Keep your accessories with you at all times. Spare parts, batteries, anything you need for an orderly transition. Orderly? Don't you get it? We're done. Finished. Over the hill. Hey, hey, hey. Now, come on, guys. We all knew this day was coming. Yeah, but now it's here. Look, every toy goes through this. No one wants to see... Hey, Sarge. What are you doing? War's over, folks. Me and the boys are moving on. Moving on? You're going AWOL? We've done our duty. Andy's grown up. Let's face it. The trash bags come out. We army guys are the first to go. Trash bags? Who said anything about trash bags? It has been an honor serving with you. Good luck, folks. And so we wrote these scenes at the beginning of the film where Woody is really just um, relentlessly defending Andy and how, you know, Andy does care about us. He, 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 he loves us. He cares about us. He, he, we need to do whatever it is he wants us to do. And the other toys are basically taking this attitude of, you're nuts. You're, you're absolutely nuts. The kid is 17 years old. He is never going to play with us again. Those days are over, Woody. It's time to move on. And everybody's firing this at Woody. And Woody is just constantly coming back, defending Andy to the point where I think for the audience, Woody seems a little insane. You know, he fe- it feels like he is broken a bit somehow, like he's not facing the reality of the situation. Woody's also such a caretaker. I mean, he's like a, he's like a dad, like he's completely dependent upon Andy, just as all the other toys are but he he's he's also trying to defend Andy in a way that he just can't because he's a toy right and it's interesting that he is kind of caught between that struggle where he is very parental at times he's parental when it comes to the other toys but he also feels like a you know he's like a child of Andy in a way and a parent of Andy simultaneously so uh, we knew that if we had pulled if we pulled this off correctly and and uh, told our story well we'd be able to get to the end of the film and have a situation where Woody was completely vindicated. You know, everything that, that Woody says about Andy at the beginning of the movie is absolutely right. It doesn't seem like we could ever come to an end of the film where, where, where Andy would play with them one last time. And that just seems ridiculous. Yet he does. One of my favorite uh, children's films, and in fact, just one of my, one of my favorite movies, is um, the sequel to Babe, Babe, Pig in the City. It was, it was very controversial at, at the time. It's a very dark film. And there's this scene in Babe, Pig in the City where Babe is in this crazy fantasy city and running away from this dog 
that's trying to kill Babe. And uh, the dog slips and falls and falls off of uh, a, a, like a pedestrian bridge and is hanging by his collar. And you, I, as a viewer, genuinely believed that death was a thing that totally could have happened to either one of them, which is, you know, not the kind of thing you usually see in a kid's movie, right? And um, I can only imagine that given that you had these characters, they, they had gone on all these adventures in Toy Story 1 and 2, which were also just really wonderful movies, um, but death wasn't necessarily one of their concerns because toys sort of don't die. Um, but I, there's a scene in Toy Story 3 where the, they have to face death. Um, and I wonder when and how you decided that you were going to present that directly and like in a way where part of the reason you're presenting it isn't because we're off on a grand adventure, but it's because we have to face death. Right. Well, it's one of the really tricky things in animation is to have any real sense of stakes. I mean, you were talking about uh, how it's odd to believe that something bad could actually happen to those characters in that film. And, um, and, and it's a tricky thing. I, you know, I've talked to Brad Bird about it. Um, you know, he made some choices on The Incredibles early on to, um, you know, have some characters really suffer consequences early in the film so that the audience would know, okay, we are in a world where even though this is animated, bad things can happen, people can get hurt, people can get killed. And um, you have to kind of be bold and do that and kind of establish the rules. Otherwise, in animation, you know, we've all watched, you know, Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote where, you know, you can have a 10-ton boulder fall on you and you just get kind of mushed and then you're okay. Um so in the case of Toy Story 3, yeah, this, this whole idea of life, like what does it mean to be alive, is a, is a weird thing when you have this fantasy world of toys being alive. Like where is the soul? Are the toys immortal? Um, when did they become alive? I mean there's just all kinds of weird, sticky, philosophical questions. I came up upon that when Mr. Potato Head put all his parts onto a tortilla well, exactly. and started walking around. Where is the like, soul? Where does Mr. – where does – where does – where does uh, the – what the is is of Mr. Potato Head live – I was thinking maybe maybe his nose, but who I don't know honestly. Exactly, and believe me, we had probably hours of conversations about <laughs> the, the 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 is of Mister Potato Head. Um, at a certain point in developing the story, I, I came to the realization that I, I really wanted the toys to kind of face their their greatest fear. You know, toys are all afraid of not being played with at a, at a simple level, and. And certainly being outgrown by the children who own them is a greater fear. But ultimately, the greatest fear is to not exist anymore, just like our greatest fear is to not exist anymore. And, and I, I try to think, well, what would that be for a toy? Um, it's not enough to get thrown away and molder in a landfill you know, for eternity. Um, but I thought if the toys were in a situation where they were heading into an incinerator and really facing their destruction, there is no life after that. That would truly be the end. And, um, you know, we had flirted with the fear of getting thrown away at the beginning of the movie. And I just thought it was important to take that kind of full tilt at the end. And um, I, I knew in my gut from the very beginning, uh, once we had this idea that I, I didn't want any comic relief in that moment. I didn't want Mr. Potato Head cracking a joke. I didn't want the toys kind of acting crazily and, you know, trying to get a laugh in any way. I wanted the, 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 the moment to feel real. Um, I always... I always likened it to um, 
you know, I've got three kids myself and I, you know, I'll sometimes find myself flying somewhere on vacation with them. And, and there's the part of me, there's the protective part of me that thinks, well, oh my God, what if, what if something terrible happened in this plane, something happened on this plane? And I think, well, what would I do? And I thought, well, you know, if we were falling from the sky, I, I think I would just hold my children close and my wife close and um, just hug them as tightly as I could. And we would just face whatever was happening. And it seemed to me that in that moment, that those toys, they are family. They are close family. And there would be nothing more for them to do than to take each other's hands and squeeze their eyes shut and face their end. But uh, yeah, it's very intense and, and people get very emotional in that scene. Um, there, there was some concern about whether what we were doing was too intense for kids. Because even though we don't make our movies for children, we know that children are going to be a big part of our audience. So we talked about that a lot. And um, I really – we didn't want to neuter the scene at all because we thought it was working really well and was very truthful and uh, emotionally honest. So we test screened the movie for a lot of families. And uh, we didn't get any feedback that from people that they thought it was too much. Uh, they just thought it was good and real. And it sparked conversations with their kids. So uh, we stuck with it and we didn't change a frame. I mean, what what is in the finished movie is exactly what we wanted to be in the film. And uh, it's kind of interesting because I think that people people get so emotional and they're so caught off guard in that moment, in that scene, that it opens them up and allows them to more freely feel emotion in some of the later scenes that are, are yet to come in the film. You know, when we get to the end of the film where Andy's giving away the toys to Bonnie, I think everyone feels just kind of opened up and ready to really experience the emotion in that scene. Was it hard for you to engage that theme so deeply personally? I mean, I know that, um, you know, as a, as Mr. Secular humor, uh, humanist, public radio host, uh, my strategy for dealing with death is to uh, never, ever, ever think about it, <laughs> um, and just you know think about it's sort of it's sort of like the the classic sort of think about baseball statistics, um, only it's for death instead of sex. Um, so I, I wonder whether it was hard for you in in a process that's so deeply engaged and takes so long to to process that and and be engaged with it for so long. Well, I think a lot of us, you know. Avoid thinking about it, but but we do think about it. I mean, you do think about it. It's, it's the one thing we're all going to share, right, at some point in our lives. And, I, you know, I don't mean to for this to go so heavy, but, you know, it is part of the movie. And um, I think that's part of why the Toy Story films have felt so um, satisfying on some level is that they speak to so many different aspects of our own lives and, and our experience of going through life. And that's a part of it. And we wanted to wrap up the story of Andy and his toys in a really lovely way and, and really have it feel like, you know, we had told a complete story over these three films. And, uh, and I think to do that, we, ha- we kind of had to go there. We had to go there at the end of the film. Well, Lee Unkrich, I, I could talk about Toy Story 3 for a million years because it was uh, totally great and delightful, but uh, we don't have a million years. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and be on The Sound of Young America. It has been an honor to be here, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> My guest, Lee Unkrich, is the director of Toy Story 3. It's available in uh, the uh, VHS cassette, digital versatile disc, Blu-ray disc, Uh, and digital download formats now. 
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. Did you like how I accidentally used like a Cockney accent just now? I have been your host. Um, The show is edited by Nick White, our associate producer, Julia Smith. Music provided to us by Dan Wally. Teresa Thorne is our development director. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download or listen to any of our past shows absolutely 1,000% for free. You can also find it in iTunes. My email address, if you have thoughts about the show, is jesse at MaximumFun.org. I hope you'll join us next week when we are live on tape from New York City with funny woman Amy Sedaris. And when I say funny woman, I mean basically the funniest person in the history of the world. 30 Rocks, Judah Friedlander, and a whole lot more. That's next week on The Sound of Young America. I hope we'll see you then. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.